Hi, everybody. Welcome to Conversations with Calvin Weeds of Species. It's uh, actually the beginning of October, which means in 28 days, it's going to be Halloween. Uh, and, and this is a, a little bit of a sizzle reel, because I, I got to tell you the title of this. I was just chatting with Gina. We've been chatting for the last couple of weeks. Uh, this is uh, about the most powerful uh, and gut-wrenching uh, and incisive and introspective uh, interview that I've done, and I've done 101 of these. But here's the title, and this should grab you. Uh, it's Gina Lola, My Life in a Commune from 1 to 22 Years, Present Day. Uh, and quote, there's a quote to finish this title. I don't know what I'm doing in 10 years. I want to know what I'm doing in 10,000 years. And, and that's, that's the, the title uh, of this. And, and that's powerful because she spent her first 22 years in a commune. And we're going to talk all about that and all the things you hear about communes. Well, you'll discover a lot of those are real. Uh, but before, uh, so that's kind of the sizzle, but I, I do have to mention that uh, I, I met Gina um, weeks ago, maybe it's a, actually a month, a month and a half ago uh, at the uh, Women's Health Institute at Rutgers Robert Johnson Medical School. Uh, Gina was a speaker and, and I'm involved. Uh, and this is Dr. Gloria Bachman, OBGYN MD. Uh, she discovered me three years ago and uh, I got involved in WHI and, and became a part of the advisory committee. And, and I go to these amazing meetings every Tuesday, Zoom lately, obviously. Uh, and, and then I met Gina and, and she told her story and it was instant, oh wow. Uh, and of course I contacted her because her story uh, uh, is amazing, uh, uh, the whole journey. And, and you don't hear too many stories like this. So uh, I'm done. I'm done with my monologue. And, and Gina, um, how thrilled and honored uh, I am uh, to be doing this with you now. So I guess the best way to start uh, is at the beginning. Um, you know, I, I think maybe, you know, the, the background, how your, your parents met. Uh, um, and even even Eddie James comes into the picture. Uh, yes. uh, that song she sings at last, one of the great songs of all time. Of all time. Yep. So uh, take it away, Gina. Uh, go back to how your parents met. Okay. And thank you. I want to say this to you, um, Calvin. Thank you so much for taking the time and energy to put into this because this is something that was just my life. And it's people like you that let me see how truly strong and overcoming I've been, which is helpful in the healing process for anyone. So especially on this level. So thank you very much. Um, my parents, actually, my father was from, from Vermont um, and his older brother, uh, my uncle Greg was in the Navy um, and he used to call home and talk to him about his adventures in the Navy. And, um, my father always, my father was 18, my uncle was 19, and he always felt like he wanted to do more with his life. Um, and the more my uncle would call and talk about his experiences and where he was, the more my dad wanted to get out of his small town in Vermont and find out what the world was about. So um, 
my uncle also um, ended up in Eddie James's band, which to me, she's one of my favorites of all time. So that was pretty cool. But um, he was in her band and in the Navy and he ended up in California. And when he ended up in California, he was telling my dad about it. And my dad made the decision at that time to go ahead and go to California. So he ended up leaving and going out to California to be with my uncle. And they both ended up at, back then, this is the late 60s, uh, you know, there's a revolution going on. I wasn't born yet, but I heard a lot about it. And there was a lot of different groups and religious groups that rose up in that era of time, especially in Hollywood. Um, and they would be on the streets in this particular group that they ended up running into, they were handing out their religious pamphlets and talking about God. Um, and so my father and my uncle who grew up in the church, um, Catholics, they had a heart towards God. So they you know, went to the services and they ended up staying. Um, they were there for probably, I think a year. Um, and then um, my mom comes into the picture, but my mother didn't know my father before, um, you know, she came, went to California. She's from St. Louis, Missouri. And at 19, her father had passed away and it was kind of a, uh, a breaking point, a breakthrough point for her in her life. And her and her boy, then boyfriend hitchhiked from St. Louis, uh, Missouri to Hollywood, California. And she told me that the reason why she decided to go to this group service that night instead of someone else's is because they offered them a free meal after and they were hungry and out of money. So that's kind of how yeah. it happened where she went there. My dad was already there. Um, it was probably about five years in, they knew each other, that they ended up getting married. And then they had me. And they were what you would probably consider like a power couple within the commune because my mom was, um, you know, she was very smart and she was a leader. My father was too, but my father was also a builder and he could run crews of people and keep people, you know, together where not everybody's a leader. So in that sense, because of that, they ended up traveling a lot. And I ended up staying a lot with other families at, starting at three. So um, anyway, um, in the very, very beginning, of course, as a little child, you don't really know the difference between good and bad. You just know you have parents and what you're experiencing. Um, but yeah, that's how I came into being. And I was born into this. So I knew nothing else. I knew no other kind of life. Mm. So... Um... You know, it's funny. Uh, it's not funny. Uh, I came out of that period, too. Yeah. I was at Rutgers uh, in the 60s and graduated in 69. So I came out of that whole tempest uh, of Vietnam, of uh, civil rights, of women's mm. liberation, uh, right. all of that which is actually part of who and what I am today. So I understand all of that. Yeah. And, and I understand the energies and, and, right. and the hitchhikings. Uh, un, um, uh, unfortunately, well, for me, I, I just didn't partake in anything. I guess it was good. I, nothing. I just stayed and, and studied and, and, and the world was changing and going on. So back to the commune, can you uh, describe it, what it was like? Uh, and by the way, a quick question also, is it around uh, today? And, and um, uh, I think I, I've read that your mom uh, is still there, I don't know, 56 yes. years later. So, yeah, so yeah, almost 60 years later, my mom is still there. She went there at 19 and she's 70, 70. So yeah. Um, 
but yes, the, the commune started as a religious group in the late 60s, and um, it was God-based, God obviously, about the Bible, heaven and hell, and having to sacrifice your life and do, live the right life so that you can go to heaven. Um, that was kind of the gist of the place. And, you know, that's kind of the backbone of a lot of religious belief systems. So it wasn't far off the mark for people who went there. It was enough to pull them in. And I think in the beginning, to be honest, I wasn't there, but from, from the energy of the people that I talked to later, they thought they were really doing God's work. And it didn't seem that, you know, something that was not good at the time. And um, I think they had a lot of them, at least the people that went there, had their hearts in the right place in the beginning. But over time, things started to change and it was a control situation and abuse. And at this point, you know, that would be when, you know, the compass inside of you kicks in, but people were brainwashed at that point. And even though they're full grown adults, they're brainwashed into this belief system. And um, eventually went from just kind of an extreme church to extreme control, um, sexual, physical, mental, emotional abuse. The uh, commune leaders controlled everyone, not, not just the adults, but the parents didn't have control over their children. The decisions that were made for their punishments, or anything like that, how their lives went was through the commune wow. leaders. Wow. Um, who got, like now I know as an adult and experienced person in the world that this was something, there was a gratification thing for this man that ran the place. He needed that power and that control. He had a lot of issues obviously, but um, to get back on track, um, I started working at seven. So I would get up in the morning, you know, 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning, get up, get ready to go to the a communal cafeteria where everybody ate their breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And um, then we'd go to a church service. Sometimes we'd have to listen to a message tape because the commune leader wasn't in town. So he'd record three hour message tapes. We'd have to do that and then go to school. Then after school, we were assigned to do work within the, uh, the commune, depending on what businesses were running at the time because different years, different businesses. But um, we would go be bussed off to this place where we would work for several hours up until like 11. 12 o'clock at night, we would get home and then we go to bed and we start all over. Wow. So, yeah. Now, part of the, um, the commune in all shapes, way in all shapes and, and, and different levels of whatever you earn, you, you give the money to the right. Yes. Yeah. So, that is something that's very important. Not only did we not technically get a paycheck. But say you had a job that was outside of the commune walls where you went and actually received money for you gave all that money to the people that ran the place and they would pay the organizational bills and then you were supposed to get an allotment of money. Now, when I was a kid, I remember it being like $20 an adult and $5 a kid. So my family could get $50 a week for everything they needed. Um, beyond, you know, you had room and board, so that was covered, but that really was covered by you working. Um, and then there was the communal place where you ate. They got a lot of donations on food and they also got a lot of donations on clothing and different things like that, that they would provide for people. Um, but what would happen most of the time is when we were supposed to get that money, we would get a message that the organizational bills were too much and we didn't have the money. So I would say 85% of the time, we never got that money, probably higher percentage, but definitely about 85% of the time. So you're working, giving all your money and you're being completely controlled. And the control and abuse just got worse and worse as the commune leader got older and as I got older. You know, in, in um, 
thinking about what you're saying and, and looking at history, I, I remember Jim Jones and his commune down yes. in one of the islands down there and everybody yes. killing themselves. Six right. people drank poison. Uh, then I also remember uh, David Koresh. And, yes, and, very similar. Very you know, similar. It is very similar. It, it is very similar. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm not pointing fingers and saying anything. It's no. just uh, these are things about communes. Um, it, it's funny. Uh, again, it's not funny. Uh, but I, I watched the movie Easy Rider uh, often. Yeah. And it, it, it's an anthem to the 60s. It's an anthem. And uh, it, it, it's... Um, but early in the movie, uh, uh, Peter Fonda... Dennis Hopper, you know, they're on their bikes. They they go to a, a bit of a commune, and yeah. and being perfectly mm -hmm. objective, it was it appealed to me because everybody it was kind of right. so. The, I guess there are good communes, and as with life. Oh, oh, absolutely. I believe commune, and I've never looked it up, but I always feel like that word is derived from community. So community, I think, is something that you need. I think we're designed as humans to need to connect and commune with other people. So it's a big gravitational pull for people. It's the right, if you wanted to uh, manipulate someone, there's certain things you got to do and you got to know how to do it. And I think that a commune can be great or it can be horrible. Um, you know, people make jokes all the time. Let's go live off the grid and start our own garden and live in a commune. And I laugh because I could totally do that but I shouldn't want to do it because I, what I went through, but I understand there's goodness in community and in having a group of people being all for one cause. It's just when, you know, the good goes bad, yeah. it can be a very dark place. So that's it for sure. Okay. And, and, and doing my homework about you, you, you spent some of your life uh, in Arkansas. I did. I lived in, so Arkansas ended up just to give you a little background. Um, Arkansas was the home um, uh, the home um, of the woman of the, the, of the couple that started this place. That's where she came from. She went to California to be, um, and this is something me and you really talked about, but she had gone to California to be an actress. And she did a lot of doubling for Betty Davis, I believe. Um, and she was a dancer and a singer. And, you know, she was, she didn't get where she wanted to be, but she definitely had some successes, but um, she had had um, gotten sick and she, I think she was looking for, she had faith because she grew up in the South and this, it's a big Bible Belt area. And so I think she gravitated towards that. And at the end of the day, I think that she had a genuine heart in the beginning, but the, all that being said, they were in Hollywood, they had all these people, they had a couple of properties and they're overflowing because their group was growing and they knew it was really expensive to live in California. So she's telling the, um, the her husband, she says, well, I, where I come from, land is cheap. So let's go out there and look. And she went and she bought land a couple miles away from where she grew up in a very small town in Arkansas. And that was where they built the, the school. And the majority of the people lived in that area and branched off to what they call outposts, like California and Chicago, and Miami and places in Nashville. These are places I lived as a child. Um, but yeah, so we, I lived there a lot of my younger years and traveled around, but mostly that was home base because the school was there, even though the school was full of 
I don't want to say uneducated people because most of them probably graduated high school, but not one of them had a degree and not one of them had one in education. And they wouldn't license the school with the um, state because they felt that it was giving the state control, the government control, and the government didn't need to have control. You know, it was just that mentality. So um, that's where I lived up until about 14 on and off and then moved to California permanently. And I know you briefly touched on this, but at seven years old, you're working, uh, and, and and sometimes you're you're you're, you're staying up uh, up at night all night long, stuffing literature and into right. Things. We had what we called all nighters, wow. all nighter track, all nighter track uh, uh, meetings where we would stuff these pamphlets into envelopes to mail them out to these lists of people. Um, and one thing I didn't mention to you that I also did as a child was passed out the literature. We were required to get in vehicles and go to big malls and shopping centers and airports and side streets. And you just walking down and you got security screaming at you. You're a little kid and you're putting these pamphlets all over cars. Wow. So that was something we were required to do too, which I did a lot of as a child. Wow. Yeah. Um, wow. Um, yeah, this is a, this is about as heavy as I'm going to get, and you can say whatever you want, but if you want uh, the word abuse, and if you want to touch on the physical, the sexual, the mental abuse that you endured as a young child. Right. So the, the theme of this place to keep people in check, and as a child, if you don't have any other scope to see any other, um, what's the word, any other example to know what's happening in front of you is what you think the world is, you know? So I was being conditioned from little girl to be molded and believe that control was what was supposed to happen. Extreme control that you had no control over yourself. Your parents didn't have control over you. Um, And that would show up in different forms. But um, one of the big things was there was a culture to keep everybody in check, if you will, but it was really a ratting system where you could put somebody on report. So you could write up a report about somebody's behavior. They lied or they wore too short a skirt or, you know, it could be anything. And you could make up stuff too, because people did that a lot. So they had people against each other. Yeah. So it was pitting the group against each other to keep telling on them, telling on, you know, using God and, and being, a good Christian. And if these people sin, they need to be told on so that they could be corrected. So they don't go to hell. I mean, that's the mentality. But even as a little girl, I never once wrote anybody on report. And I knew kids all around me, adults all around me that were doing it all the time for their different reasons. Maybe they thought they were doing something right. But I watched a lot of people do it as a vindictive, you know, it's like a, a turf war type of thing with people. And it was, it was very toxic. But what would happen is, is they put these people on report, the commune leader would get it. And a lot of times he was traveling all over the place. So he might not have been in the location that everybody was, that was involved. So then he would, if it was a big enough report, he would call all the kids out of school. So whoever was in trouble could be made an example of in front of the whole school. So we would cram into this this big office and sit around this phone while he's berating this person, telling them, you know, all these things. And now they need to get beat. And a lot of times it was children, children my age or children a little bit older in their teens. But what he would do is he would tell them how many, what he would say, stripes they needed to get. And then they would have four grown men hold each limb of the child, whether it was a boy or a girl. And they had a boat oar, like an old fashioned boat oar that had been laminated, like varnished, so it was smooth. 
and they would use that to beat the kids. So the bull horse a lot of times is bigger than the kid. And there's a few kids and it's documented in, um, in court cases that people went through years ago when I was a kid that it, it, you know, it busted their skin open and they were bleeding. Um, and, you know, I saw this and I was a little kid watching this. So I had this, I had this anxiety and terrorist feeling inside of me that was wired in young. Um, and everything was controlled. What we did, how we did it, where we were, you could never go anywhere alone. You had to have, if you drove in a car, you had to have a second person so they could watch you. It was supposed to be protection, but it was really a control system. And this man then started beating adults. That would be their, that would be their uh, punishment. And then they still have the kids come down and watch these adults get spanked on, you know, or put people on fast or lock them in their house for two months and not be allowed to be around anybody over things that sometimes weren't true at all, but they were minor infractions. Someone got in a disagreement with somebody. It was not anything that anybody should have control over someone's life that way. And there definitely was sexual abuse. Um, I had sexual abuse happen to me at seven and eight years old by two different men in the commune. And I know that can happen outside of commune. Um, but come to find out later on, the commune leaders started taking young wives. And he was obviously that sexual abuse. He was in his 60s and they were as young as eight years old. So it was a very toxic, dark place. And for me as a kid, that was the only thing I knew. But there was something inside of me that was resistant to everything and everyone around me that said, this, this, there's not, something wrong with this. And this started at like nine years old. There's something wrong with what is happening here. And now I know it was my soul trying to protect me and which finally it did. I got old enough to really go, but um, it's even looking back at it now, it's still, it's, it's not an open wound, but it's still a dark place, you know, a really dark place. Uh, a little off topic, um, or, or, well, I, I know you can't really recollect, um, but uh, law enforcement, did they ever get involved? There was a couple of times, and this is an important thing in my own story about things that happened later on for me, but there was a, not a couple of times, more than a couple of times, there was where a parent would leave the commune and maybe they left in the middle of the night because they want to just get out of there and the other parent wouldn't go when there's children involved. So what would end up happening is the commune leader would get a bunch of the people within the commune to write letters, like so if they went to court for the kids, write letters of how abusive this parent was and how horrible they were to their kids and they didn't deserve. Meanwhile, this wasn't the case at all. They're a great parent. But they would have this done so that it would be gaslighting the court system to think that they didn't deserve their child so their children could stay within the commune wow. with the other parent. And there was a few times where feds came in, woke well, people up at six o'clock in the morning, people are in their showers, people are not fully dressed, they're standing outside with guns to their head, and this is adults and children. So there, the, the SWAT teams came in, the feds came in, and they were looking for a particular child at that time. But the point is, is this was what I saw as a little girl. So down the line, when I was having my own experiences involving children and how to handle it, I still had a lot of brainwashing and fear around that. So, but that, that happened. And, or the commune would hide them, take the parent and maybe send them to Canada or somewhere. And then the, the commune would pay all the bills so there would be no social that would come up. Their name wouldn't be on the house. You know, things like that, that would protect the situation to keep them hidden. So that was the lengths they would go. Wow. Well, wow. yeah. now you 
you get married at 15. Yes. And you have children. Yes. I got married at 15. And just to give a little background on that, that was right before I got married, the commune leader had given a message to the whole commune, all the locations to let people know that God told him he needed to start taking more than one wife. Um, that God said that it's not for everyone, but in his case, he's a prophet, so he needs to have more than one wife. Um, and he did try to, right after I ended up getting married to the man that I had my children with, he tried to break up that relationship because he wanted me to become one of them. And I was 15, which I resisted and I got in a lot of trouble for because I didn't just go with it. But he started marrying young girls then, and I was 15. And then it just got younger and younger. It was went from like, mid-teens to down into single digits but yeah I was married off to a man almost my dad's age he was 20 years older than me um and it was an arranged marriage in that sense the way that they wanted it set up was the girls getting married off young there was a lot of men there that didn't have wives because they didn't date or anything so unless a woman came along that was available that they're interested in and you know an adult woman um they would just be single for years. And that was the case with my children's father. He was single for a really long time. He had moved there when he was 19 from California. And um, we got married. And at that point, birth control wasn't allowed. I tried to get him to leave the night of our, our wedding. I thought maybe if he liked me enough that he would go because I wasn't ready to go on my own. I was young and I was scared, um, but he said no. So, you know, I stayed and I ended up having my kids. I have four kids, four kids from 15 to 21. And, um, you know, it's, there's a lot of people that have kids young, but in this kind of circumstance and situation with all the other traumas on top of it, it's not, I, that's one of the things I told my kids, please, if you don't want children, it's okay. But make sure when you do that, you know who you are and that you have figured out enough about yourself because, you've gone through so much in your life, but even if you hadn't, that's a choice that you should have, you should have a choice that you should be able to make. So, yeah. And you know, you don't regret anything, of course, but you know, I would never be okay with my 15 year old daughter being married off to a 30 something year old man. No, at all. Um, another interesting, we said it in the beginning, uh, your mom is still there 50, 60 years, but your dad left. Yes. Okay. Your mm -hmm. dad left. My dad left and he wanted her to come. Um, but she was, there had been a few years. I, I found this out on the back end because of course I was a child, so I wasn't privy to it, but there was a while where he was resisting what he was seeing and it hadn't even gotten extreme with the child brides and all of that. But there was things that he that was just grating against his spirit that he's like this is not what i signed up for but i'm sure he had some form of brainwashing over almost 20 years time being there and having fear that if he left and he was just being resistant to what god wanted that something bad could happen to you because that's one of the things that the commune leader would preach is all the people that ever left either got killed or were in prison or they died of cancer or something like god struck them down so this was pumped into me from a young child complete so, brainwashing it complete so even when even when i decided to leave later but when my dad left i think that he still had some of that in the back of his mind even though he was fighting it and trying to get my mother to leave there was only so much he would do he did he did beg her i found out for a few hours like please leave with me um she wouldn't and i was their only child so he said i couldn't take you from your mother i didn't feel that was okay to take 
a child from their mother, um, although he wanted to take me. Um, so he did leave and he went back to Vermont, New York area where he's from and uh, tried to recover his life as much as possible and did try to send me gifts and communicate with me, but that all gets shut down. And the goal is, is if a, a spouse is left there, you don't want them to eventually want to leave and be with the other spouse. So they try to get you to get married off again or connected with somebody else. So you'll want to stay. So eight months after my dad left, my mom remarried and she had children with um, her second husband, my two sisters. So yeah. Uh, is your dad around still here? No, my father actually passed um, in 2011. We did re get to reconnect and a lot of healing happened, which was really, really great. And um, he got to spend time with his grandchildren. And um, we had conversations that I got to learn about things I didn't know, because of course my mother never told me. Um, but I will tell you that I'm grateful for his strength and his perseverance because that is why I have the strength and perseverance to leave, being born into that. Because my parents weren't born into it and it was hard for my dad to leave, my mom is still there. So it was, I used to tell him, thank you for the DNA that you gave me because it made me strong. So yeah. Do you have any uh, contact with your mom now? I hadn't, yeah. Well, I could if I wanted to at this point. Okay. Um, she, wasn't speak to me for a long time because she wasn't allowed to because I was what they called a backslider, somebody that left. And then when the feds came in a few years later, a, a few years later, um, and I became a, a star witness for them to protect the children that had been taken out of there, then I became an enemy of the, the commune because I went against it and I told the truth on the stand, even to my own detriment. You know, it, it could have hurt me, but I had to tell the truth. So for me, I um became so then she really couldn't talk to me and the commune leader was still alive but once he passed away i think she was in her mind at least was more open to speaking to me i think she got information through people that she knew but um in i think it's been two years yeah two and a half years um almost three in december um my sister one of my sisters lives in los angeles and she had been in communication with my mother since she left because she hadn't gone against the commune by going to court and stuff. So she still spoke to that sister. And this sister and I had been building a bond again after she left. And um, she said, why don't you come out here? And um, mom's gonna come to the house for Christmas and we'll just surprise her. So my mom walked into the house and I was standing there after 20, I think it was like 21 years. And it was a very, very good emotional connection. But what I saw as a grown adult looking at my mom, which I kind of knew already, but it kind of was sealed and confirmed for me is I had always been the parent. My father was the parent first for her. She never really mentally fully grew up and was her own person. And then when my father passed, when my father left, I was picking her up off the floor every night at three o'clock as she was crying her eyes out and couldn't function. And I was trying to breathe life into her and give her the organizational rhetoric about if he left us, that he doesn't deserve deserve us. All the things I didn't believe, but whatever I could do to get her up off the floor, and to get her stable again. But I got to see that she wouldn't, she would not touch on anything that really mattered that affected four generations of my family. Even in that meeting, she wanted to keep it simple. And although I understand our first meeting visiting, that you know I get it. But at the end of the day, you have brought your children to a war zone and let bombs go off in their face. And if you didn't recognize it at 19 or 40 or 60, 
when all of your children left and life is getting, you learn and learn as you grow, your soul is there. It's checking you along the way. You can't even look and say, you know what? I didn't have, I didn't get it right, but I love you, whatever, something like that. But she's still so brainwashed that she believes her own lies. So to her, there's nothing else to talk about. So she would contact me after, but she just wanted to talk about the weather and simple things. And after a few months of that, I, I really just said, you know what? We can talk about what degrees it is in California and New York, but really that's not why we need to connect. I love you. I will always love you, but I'm at peace with this now. So I kind of just let that contact you. dissipate for I my own you. peace. I got you. Um, I completely understand for lots yeah. of personal reasons. I understand yeah. that. Um, I think we have to lighten this a little bit. Yes. So I'm going to go off topic um, and okay. ask you one of my favorite questions, Gina. Okay. Uh, so uh, it's fun. Um, <laughs> it can be fun. I mean, uh, so here's the uh, uh, living or dead, uh, excluding family or friends, somebody you'd like to spend the day with. And you could answer a couple, There's, or you don't have to answer at all. Mm, this is a good one. Yeah, it is a good one. Um, actually, it is. Who would it be? I think I would have to, I'd have to name at least two people. And I honestly, if I really thought about it heavily, I could probably give you more than that. But sure. Muhammad Ali. Wow. So because that. Muhammad Ali, okay, I, when I, as we've talked about it, I'm writing my book, but in the last 10 years, I've attempted writing it several times, but the, you know, you got to heal the wounds before you can um, be completely whole. So those things were very touchy. So I would start it and stop. Bottom line is, is I, one of the, my running titles, which is not my title now, was raised in the ring. So it was because I got to see things about Muhammad Ali when I was younger on TV, because I got to watch a little TV back then, then they cut it off. And then I learned about him afterwards. And what I found about Ali was that the era of time he was in, the color of his skin, all of the things that were against him, he was the most confident and passionate about what he believed and how he believed. He, he was a human. I'm sure he had second-guessed things. But that led him into, lot to me, it's like law of attraction. That led him into what he knew to, and believed happened. And I looked at him as like a mentor in a way. And even though he was a boxer in real life and I was going through something completely different, it was a metaphorical boxing ring. And I was raised in the ring and uh, my journey to the TKO was the the running title. Um, And that was, he was very powerful for me and he was somebody I didn't even know. And I felt like he had more odds against him than I would as a white woman, if you will, in the world. And he didn't back down. And I always had that kind of energy inside of me, but I was told not to have that energy at all because somebody else is supposed to control me. So Muhammad Ali, and then um, I think Rumi would be another one because I'm a big quote writer, wordsmith person and Rumi's quotes, somebody from another country in another language in another time has been able to feed my spirit so much. So I would love to sit down with Rumi to understand where all that wisdom came from. So yeah, those are the two. Great answers. And and here's our commonality, more commonality. Uh, Last week, I watched Ken Burns 
the beginning of his documentary on Muhammad Ali. Oh, wow. I love, <laughs> loved, loved Muhammad Ali for a million mm. reasons. Uh, yes. Not to go into it, but he's been one of my great, great, great heroes. Yes. My entire, my entire life since I discovered him. And, and, and uh, so the minute I, I saw that they were having this documentary, I, I started watching it. Yeah. And I'm probably going to buy the whole thing. Cause that's awesome. He, he's so yes, he's a, a hero of mine. And the other uh, question off topic, uh, the significance of your background. Um, yes. Uh, the, the picture behind you. <laughs> yeah. You could tell me that. Okay. So a lot of people, you know, there's different faiths, there's different belief systems. I always knew that there's a higher power for sure whether the, the, if you want to give it the G-O-D name or whatever name you want to put on it. Um, for me, um, I knew that, but when I left there, I didn't go, like, just go try to join a church because to me that was, not the churches were repulsive, but the idea of just going right back into that without research and vetting life, because I hadn't vetted life yet, um, wasn't going to happen. But I never lost my faith in my soul connection to a higher power. Um, and one of the things I will tell you with all that trauma and struggle and PTSD and anxiety, which when you see me on the outside and you see me in the world, you wouldn't see that coming from me, but it's all inside. I just keep it tacked, tucked in well, or I used to. Um, what I found was meditation. It was something that seemed to calm me and made me feel more connected what, to what I believe was God or the source of all. Um, and a lot of meditation, um, I, a lot of them that I would pull up or listen to the guided ones would be, there would be Buddhas in the background or they talk about Buddhist belief systems and I, a belief system. And I feel like the Buddhist faith is the most aligned with my spirit, the way it is. Meaning I don't go to a Buddhist temple. I don't do any of that, but it is what connects me. I actually have it. I don't have it on right now, but I have a ring with Buddhist face. And it's a reminder that to stay centered, stay peaceful, stay connected to your, your spirit. Because when you're fully there, that's when you feel the most connected to your soul for one. And what connects our soul to the higher power is, is that energy, that soul energy. So we get caught up in the human start stuff, the wiring inside of us, the emotions, the frustration, all of that, that's normal. You're supposed to feel all of that to grow. But the most peaceful and loving place is when I meditate or I'm in a place that feels like a meditation, which is being connected to God's source and higher power. And that's why I have Buddhas all over my house as a reminder. I think it's great. Yeah. Truly, truly. I, I keep looking for things too uh, in, in my world. Um, uh, how did you, I don't think we discussed it uh, uh, how did you actually get out, escape? Well, there was so um, many, there were so many levels and layers to why I left the last time I left and, and was able to um, really get out. But to make the long story short for this interview, um, I had tried to leave a time before and my children's father couldn't handle being away from the commune because he was still so brainwashed. He had only done it for me. And um, he basically convinced me to go back and I wasn't ready to, to try to do it on my own. So I went back with him, but 
we weren't there for more, I don't think it was more than like a year, year and a half before I had to go again. And I think it was God's design in that sense, because I was getting in all, if you could, could call it trouble, being a, a grown adult, with children working full-time job, not sinning, not doing things wrong, but things from childhood kept coming up with this commune leader's wives. One of the girls was not a virgin when he married her at like 13. So he was trying to figure out why. And she kept, every time he asked her, she would tell him a different story. And one of the stories was that when we were little girls, we messed around. But the stories before that were with boys. And I, I didn't even know about stuff like that as a child. So this last scenario where it was a, a crazy thing where the commuter was calling my home, he was screaming at me, telling me I better say that this must have happened because you know, even though I was five and this girl was three, it had to have happened because she's saying it happened. And then when I was telling him, no, it didn't happen, I would, I would just tell you because I was a kid. Um, he started threatening my son who I was pregnant with that God was going to kill him in my womb. And they just all this real traumatic stuff. And after I, got, I kept hanging up on him, which you weren't allowed to do that, but I kept hanging up on him. Um, and I was 20 years old at the time. And after the phone call and everything was done, I looked at my children's father and I said, I'm leaving. I said, I don't know what you're doing, but I'm leaving. And he was so upset by the situation, he agreed to leave again. Bottom line to the story, he snuck me out of the property, put me in a motel room with no money and no way to get to my dad in New York. And I was in California and just told me to call my dad who I didn't talk to in years. And who knows if he had the money to red eye me that next day and pay for my cab and whatever else I needed. But yeah, I, I ended up calling my dad and thank God he did have it. And he paid for the cab, which was like probably about an hour and 20 minute ride away to the airport, LAX. And um, he paid for my flight. Thank God that he was able to do that. Um, but that's how I got out. And uh, I look back and, and, and can't believe that's how it happened or that's how the father of my children handled that situation with me and his youngest son. But, you know, you don't see it at the time because you're so... I think you just got this fog over you. I, I can't explain brainwashing well, but it's like as life has gone on, little light switches have been popping on in my life and I'm, awareness happens. It's not by someone telling me because it's something I have to experience. And um, so I look back at that and I'm so grateful that it happened the way it did, that everything happened and I got out safely. But yeah, you, you kind of had to sneak out unless you wanted a bite wow. on your hands. Yeah. And sitting here with you now, and knowing the whole background, um, it's kind of amazing. Yes, uh, uh, listen, the whole world uh, has scars from the pandemic, one way or another. Uh, right. You have scars, but uh, you you discovered something amazing about yourself, um, and, and why you're where you're at and what you're doing. You, you know, you you had your IQ checked, and you're a smart person. Yeah. And that that was the fuel that yeah. kind of moved you along, isn't it? Absolutely. I would say that um, that is the foundation of how I got through the survival um, that I went through for so many years after. And some of the survival, obviously, is because you, it's like living and we, it's like living underground. And then one day you're forced to go above ground. You have to get used to the light. You got to get used to taking, you know, cleaning your body in a bath or water. There's all these different things. You have to get your food different way. So for me, I was 
pushed out to the top of the surface, then I didn't have anybody that knew how to do anything next to me to help me. So, and I had all the conditioning, the brainwashing, and well, most of my family was still back at the commune and I was pretty much on my own. I mean, I had some family around, but they weren't, they didn't know how to handle the situation properly. Um, and it's interesting because a very close family friend told me a couple of years ago when we were talking one day, she said, I wanna tell you that when you left the commune, your father, my father was one of five, but my uncle, one uncle passed away. So there was four men. She said, they're all the best men I've ever met, the most loyal, the most dedicated, they'll protect you with their life, but not one of them knew how to take care of you properly and make sure that your path, your foot was on the right path. Meaning they're around for family events and they were there for basic things, but they should have been there in a way. So when she said that to me, I didn't even realize that, that, that if I was on her end, I would have thought the same thing and I would have pushed them to do that because maybe they just didn't know how to navigate it. But coming out of that, um, I learned all the things I had struggled through, through the survival process. I stayed in survival mode for a really long time because I didn't have any guidance. And I was just kind of putting out fire after fire after fire in my life and still dealing with brainwashing and fear of just basic life things that people don't normally fear. Um, so it took me a little longer, I would say, than the average person. But in all of those, those situations and circumstances I was in, in my survival mode, um, I realized that once I got out, what I wanted to do is help people that were struggling, whether it was financially, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, just be there in some way to give them a hand up. Because there was one time I remember, I don't remember the exact reason, but I had to go down somewhere and get food from like a food pantry. And I had not had any kind of help or assistance um, the whole time I had been gone. And I've been gone for years. And when I got this food, this feeling rushed over me of how grateful I was for this little box of canned food and beans and stuff and how it made me feel hope again. So I knew then that feeling, I knew I had to provide that to other people in one form or fashion. So that's what I'm working on now. Powerful. And that's, and that's why you're writing to tell your story. Oh, absolutely. The writing is obviously cathartic for me. Um, but my big thing is if I can help one person, um, if I can impact one person's life, I completed my mission here on earth. I completed um, the course of the tough existence that brought me to a place where I'm not bleeding out anymore. I've got my wounds cauterized. Now I can help cauterize other wounds so those people can heal and have a better life. Great stuff. Great stuff, Gina. You said something uh, that, that moved me. Uh, you described your experience as kind of like living uh, in an attic during the Holocaust. And there was also a recent movie, um, The Underground Railroad, that I watched yes. a few months ago. And there's a scene where these... I watched it too. Yeah, and they're living in the attic. Uh, also. Yes. Yes. So, and I related that to Anne Frank, which you did. I, I thought that was very profound. Yeah. Um, it, it's kind of the way I said was, um, I actually mentioned Corey Timboom, but that's an Anne Frank style uh, story, which they're both true stories, um, how they, they stayed in the attic to hide from the Nazis. And my whole life, I felt 
metaphorically caged in the attic where you could see outside the small window and see there was people out there in the world moving about there, driving the cars, they were functioning in the world, but you didn't know how to do those things. You were um, in a muted, tense, controlled and fear-filled place being in that attic and you were not allowed to go out. So once you get out, you feel free, but you're terrified. Um, and so it was like that. And I'm just so grateful that I got out of the attic. That's all I can say. Well, I'm grateful too, because this whole experience with you is very moving for me um, as a journalist, um, truly. Uh, knowing you and your your journey and, and i'm trying to process all this um in, in the title of our when i was doing my little sizzle reel uh it's a very short title to to this uh, video but part of the title was uh, i don't know what i'm doing in 10 years i want to know what i'm doing in 10 in ten thousand years what a quote where'd that come from my father so my dad was one thing that my dad was is he was connected to his soul um, and he talked from his soul space a lot and that's where I get a lot of my strength wisdom and just understanding about these things but he would say things like deep like that all the time but my favorite one that I remember him saying all the time is I don't want to know what I'm doing in 10 years what is my soul going to be doing in 10,000 years like this earth thing is just a blip on the radar so let me not get too dragged down pulled down by it let me just keep it moving and keep Keep my focus on what matters. Yeah. That's it's one of the best quotes I've ever heard. Wow, do I love that quote for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about that one of these days. Um, so we're kind of winding down this this most uh, um, amazing uh, time with you. Uh, so what are you doing now? What's your life like now? So my life is now is um, I am. I moved to um, New Jersey a few years ago and um, I you know, have a day job, but I'm actually working right now setting up uh, a nonprofit, which is basically going to be um, to help people from unstable situations into a stable situation. It's called the Bridge of Love House. So it's the bridge getting them from one place to the other. And it doesn't mean that I can provide you with everything um, all the time that you need, but if I can help you get connected to the right people to get the long-term stabilization, but also provide you with emergency assistance in between that time and be that mentor and that guiding light for you to get where you need to be, that's what matters for me. Because that bridge is like Mount Everest for most people. And there's not a lot of people enough. I shouldn't say there's not a lot. There's not enough out there standing on that bridge for people. So I wanna be on the bridge. And so that's what I'm working on right now. And your book. And my book. I don't want to forget the book. But yeah, I'm book. definitely working on the book too. Yep, and your yeah. book. Finally, uh, the, uh, th this has been a, a wow for me. Um, uh, I can't even verbalize what this means to me because it touches so many different aspects of things that, that mean something to me. Um, and, and having met you. And, and finally, you know, uh, your comments on, on how you met Dr. Bachman, and that's how we're going to kind of wrap this up, because yeah. I always tell Dr. Gloria Bachman, uh, I just wrote her actually last night, that she's been transformative in my life. It yes. took me into a whole new place uh, of yes. awareness 
Um, same for me. Same for me. It's interesting that you should use those terms because I believe in life. We life is. I, I always say it's earth school. So we're we're going through school, and there's different levels, and there's you got to take a final exam. And a lot of times when your life is you're going through some tough times, it's because you're at the final exam stage of that level, and then you're going to go to the next level. Um, the level where I'm going into with writing the book and trying to get it published and the nonprofit is all intricately um, woven into how I met Dr. Bachman. And it's a level I've been wanting to be at for so long. And it just came about in such a organic way that that's how I know it was, it was designed that way. It was supposed to happen. It was not coincidence. But the bottom line is she is an OBGYN and um, my uh, OBGYN is in her practice but she was not available and I was looking for an appointment. They said, are you interested in, in an appointment with a different doctor? And I said, that's fine. And they told me the name. I didn't know who she was, but I said, okay. So bottom line to the story is in the part of the, the you know, when she's talking to you, she asked you your medical history. And I was telling her about a little bit about my life. She kind of just, you know, said, oh, okay. You know, I grew up in a commune. I had my kids, John. Um, then I gave her a quote and it's, Unfortunately, I can't remember what she said, what I said, but it was kind of like my father's quote, where as soon as I said it, and it was one of my own phrases, she said, what? She goes, wait a minute, let me write that down. And she grabbed the pen and wrote it down on a piece of paper. And then she looked at me and she goes, um, do you like to write? Because I, I hadn't told her I was writing a book yet. Um, I said, I love to write. Um, it's my favorite thing to do. And she said, okay, well, start talking to me about Women's Health Institute. And she said, would you like to write for the Institute's uh, journal? I said, absolutely. So she said, I'll forward you the information. I said, you know, I'm actually writing a book and that's how I, I brought that up to her. And she said, well, that's great. She goes, um, just I'll send you the information and you can write. So I ended up writing for the journal and then I went back in for a follow-up visit. And um, she um, said to me, she goes, All right, you're, so, you're writing that book, right? And I said, yeah. She goes, well, I'd like it if you could come to the panel meetings. You know, it's, you know, I want to, I want you to come to them if you can, which I work most of the time, but um, she said, but I also want you to present at one of the meetings about your book. And it was just stunning to me because I wasn't looking for that kind of network and connection. I was just living my life, but I believe that's when angels, spirits, guides, whatever, God connects you to the right people. And it's been transformative for me because I'm in a whole different space. I'm going faster towards my trajectory that I wanna be and just by connecting with Dr. Bachman. And then of course you were at the uh, presentation meeting and we connected and it's been transformative for me too because there might be a few years gap in our age. Well, we more, have than a very, more than a few, but that's all right. But we have a, we have a, like a soul bond thing that I think is very powerful and that just shows you that you can connect with people with different areas of life, different age groups, and um, that we are always guided and protected. And that is the most powerful thing to me. And meeting Dr. Bachman is confirmation of what I already knew. So yes, and I'm so I, grateful. I say the same thing. Uh, and, and what a great way to close our time here. Um, I'm, I'm going to say it on air formally. You, you've got your nonprofit. We can talk about that. You come back. Your book, you'll come back. Yes. Uh, and we'll talk about it off camera as well. But I'm inviting you back because you are so Thank fascinating you. in your background, in your life, 
this is great stuff, Gina, and, and I cannot thank you enough for oh, your time, you. uh, your precious time. This has been great. And I oh, thank, thank you. you. No, thank you. I'm humbled to be able to be here and be a part of this. I really thank am. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And, and you're yes, you, you're, I'm inviting you back. And thank you. <laughs> okay, thank you. so be well, Gina. Yes, you too.